0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While well, we continue our series today, The Boundless Compassion of God. So turning your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, A Man, His God, and His Purpose.
1: a basic and fundamental truth that God, as the creator of all things, also owns all things, and therefore all things are subject to him. Psalm 29 says that the voice of the Lord is over the waters, that he's the one that breaks the cedars of Lebanon, meaning, of course, that God is the one who controls the storm. He's the one that makes the deer give birth. Indeed, he controls all things, and that's because all things are subject to him. He's the creator and the ruler. You know, in the case of human beings, the matter is a bit more complicated, as we all know, but I love to say that every human being ever created will glorify God. We will glorify him by being the object of his eternal mercy and grace, or we will glorify him by being the object of his eternal justice, but we will glorify him. After all, he is our creator and owner and has absolute right over his creation, and in this way he determines the purpose of our existence, it is to glorify him. Well, now all that's a mouthful, but let me take this thought to the next level. If indeed it is true, and it is, that God has absolute rights over all things, including us as human beings, well, it must also then be true that God has infused everything in his creation with purpose. God does not create for no purpose. He creates for his glory. That means when it comes to human beings that God creates us with purpose. Now, that's not only true in a general sense. It's also true in all the meticulous details of every single individual life. God created you with purpose, and his purpose is good because God is good. Now, we're beginning a study in the book of Jonah, and we will see a man who, like so many of us, hates the purpose God has in mind for him. We're going to put the date of this event around the year 782 BC. Jeroboam II is king of Israel, and Shalmaneser IV was king of Assyria. The book of Jonah begins very simply. Jonah 1 verses 1 and 2 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. As we've seen before, Jonah lived in the northern kingdom of Israel at a time when two major threats seem to have been mitigated. The Syrians have been defeated by the Assyrians, and so Israel was able to take back much of the land and the cities that had once been occupied by the Syrians. And the Assyrians, now that they had defeated a number of nations, were at least for the time being preoccupied with their own internal problems and all that left a power vacuum, and Israel was prospering under those conditions. Times were good. And furthermore, Jonah, as a prophet in Israel, was encouraging the rebuilding of their nation, and most likely was encouraging them to turn to the Lord. You know, for Jonah personally, I would have thought this must have been a time he enjoyed. But then our text says that the Lord spoke a word to him, and the word was about his purpose. And the purpose of God was about to disrupt his life. Not just because he was called to go to the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, but because of something he didn't agree with. What to do when God's ways clash with our own ways? Now, all we know about Jonah, that is, his background, is the very little that we find in the book of Second Kings and what we find in Jonah 1 verse 1. 2 Kings tells us that he came from a small town called Gath-Hefer. It was in lower Galilee, just a few kilometers from Nazareth. It was on the border of the tribal allotment of Zebulun. The second thing we know about Jonah is that he was the son of Amittai, but we know nothing about Amittai. So it's safe to say that if this incident described in the book of Jonah had not happened, well, we'd never have even heard of Jonah at all. See, up to this point in time, he didn't have a significant ministry. And that does tell us something about the ways of God. God may design it so that a man or a woman will live out his or her life in obscurity or in the limelight. Or God may so design it that for one dramatic moment, there is a role to play for any man or any woman that is so large and so significant that for that one moment, it forever defines all of their life. And so in one year, the word of the Lord came to Jonah we don't know if he was or was not suited to the task or the assignment that God had given him. But we do know that God could have picked any number of men, but he doesn't. This is a part of the drama of Jonah's life. And it reminds us of Paul's own words in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen. And You see, because there Paul said, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Yeah, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Not only to save him, but to appoint him as as a missionary to the Gentiles. In Paul's words, it was necessity, not choice. My creator, the one who owns all things, well, he demanded this of me, and I should fulfill my role. If then there is any praise for what I do, says Paul, all praise will then go to God. Well, very good. What was Jonah's assignment? Well, our text says he was to arise, meaning he was to leave his environment. He was to make a journey to Nineveh, which would have been somewhere around a, you know, a 600 mile journey or just short of thousand kilometers. It would have been a journey by land following what would have at that time been the major trade route. He would have followed that fertile crescent going first north, then south, then east. And the text of Jonah calls Nineveh a great city. That would mean that it was of a large size, larger, most likely than anything Jonah would have ever seen in his own life. Eventually, the city would become the center for the greatest empire that the Middle East had seen up to that point in time. But then God tells him what to do when he arrives. See, our text simply says he is to call out against it for the evil of that city has come up before God. So at the outset, we might say that that's exactly what prophets do. See, in a great many cases, it was not just calling out the sins of Israel, they also were called to call out the sins of the nations. You know, as I've mentioned, about 20 years after Jonah, there was a prophet named Amos, and he called out against the sins of, well, they were in this order, against Syria, then against Gaza, then against Tyre, then Edom, then Ammon, then Moab, then Judah, and then finally Israel. So for a prophet, you might expect this wouldn't seem so unusual. Cry out against the evil that's done in the city of Nineveh. And you might expect Jonah would go and then come back, having denounced an evil city for her sins. But in the Hebrew language, that is the original language that this book was written in, well, to preach against, well, that's a true translation, but still it misses a nuance that was there in the original. Jonah was to inform the people of Nineveh of their wickedness, or he was to describe the exact nature of her sins. But what was the wickedness? Well, if we go ahead in time, more than 50 years later, to the time of Isaiah, Isaiah 10:13 says of Nineveh, that is, he describes Nineveh's attitude, and it says, for he says, that is, Nineveh says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasuries like a bull. I bring down those who sit on thrones. That seems to have been Nineveh's major sin pride and her willingness to overthrow nations in a display of power and to brazenly rob the nation's wealth. Now, as I've said, at the time of Jonah, that power had not yet been realized, but but no doubt those tendencies were there. The Ninevites were an exceedingly cruel people, and God had appointed a prophet to go to them to inform them that this display of arrogance had been noted by God and that God would turn against them. Let's get back to this matter of Jonah's task of informing the people of Nineveh of their sin. Why would Jonah have struggled, or to put it more accurately, why would Jonah have rebelled against this command? Why shouldn't he have been delighted to prophesy against their sin? But he isn't, why? And so let's give a little spoiler alert. Let's go ahead to Jonah four, verse two. And we know that Jonah has a sneaking suspicion That this call to denounce Nineveh was God's intention to bring them to repentance so that he might have mercy on Nineveh. That's all I'm going to say right now. Jonah doesn't want to see himself as the man who is the vessel of mercy for the people of Nineveh. He finds that to be an unacceptable assignment. We come now to verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Joppa, which is now called Jaffa, is just north of modern-day Tel Aviv. It's a seaport city right along the Mediterranean. And if you take a map of the Mediterranean Sea, well, you're soon going to discover a body of water that's very important. You know, it borders on Israel, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Turkey, Greece, Italy, Spain, and more. It was one of the great trading waterways of the ancient world. Jonah was taking a super highway out of Israel.
0: Back to the Bible, Canada exists to bring you into a transformative relationship with Jesus. And we're so encouraged to hear just how this is happening for those who listen to Dr. John's daily Bible teaching program. Kaylee recently shared, I am thankful for the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ written in God's holy word, taught by Dr. John Neufeld. The word is clearly taught, and my walk with the Lord is deepened in him as I listen. If you felt the impact of this ministry, we'd love to hear from you. Also, if this ministry impacted your walk with Jesus or someone you know, please consider supporting the ministry this month by participating in our Match Campaign. In June, every dollar you give will be matched by another dollar up to $100,000, in essence doubling the impact of your donation. To do so, just give us a call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Jonah got into a boat to go to Tarshish, but where was he going? Well, the answer is he was going to Spain, and not just Spain, but to a seaport city, probably very close to the mouth of the Strait of Gibraltar, where the Mediterranean Sea ends and the vast Atlantic Ocean begins. It was as far as you could get before you came to endless open ocean. And so Jonah flees as far as he can go uh, without being able to go any further. Once he got there, he ran out of real estate But it was an endless distance from Nineveh. Now one question that frequently gets asked is whether or not Jonah had a correct perspective of God. Assyria is to the east and he's fleeing to the west by a ship along the Mediterranean. He's going as far as any shipping in that day dared to go. If he would have gone further, he would have had to cross the Atlantic and no mariner in that day would have been able to do that. But let's not lose track of the issue. Does Jonah feel he really can flee from from the presence of God so that God, in effect, loses track of where he is? Or does Jonah think that the God of Israel is only a tribal deity, that once you get out of his region, he no longer rules the rest of the world? Well, we know that before Jonah, that is, you know, more than 200 years before Jonah, King David had written Psalm 139. And Psalm 139, 7 to 12 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night... Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You know, would Jonah have been aware of that psalm? Well, of course, I mean, we can't say with certainty that he was. And even though Psalm 139 would have been collected into a book sometime after Jonah, well, there's no reason to believe that he was unaware of this important psalm by Israel's greatest king. I mean, after all, Jonah was a prophet of the God of David. I also have to assume that Jonah was fully aware that there is but one God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And furthermore, Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Jonah is a prophet of the creator of all things. And and that's why David would say it's impossible to flee from his presence. And think of how profound David's words are when we do apply them to Jonah. Even if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there it is your hand that's going to direct me in all my ways. I will not, indeed I cannot, escape from your immediate presence. You might also remember that years later, the Apostle Paul was speaking to a a group of pagan philosophers in the Greek city of Athens. And there, as he is recorded in Acts 17, 26 and 28, Paul would say to them, And he that is God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. See, Paul thought it doesn't matter in which nation you live or in in which culture you live or what set of personal beliefs that you've adopted, no matter what you believe or where you've lived or what you did or the choices you made either for the evil or for the good. You were doing everything in the direct presence of God. So let's make that point as plain as we can. Whether you're sleeping or awake, whether you're at work or at home, whether you're blessing your neighbor or ripping off someone in business, whether you're reading your Bible or visiting a prostitute, you're doing everything you do in the immediate presence of his watchfulness. You might never have been aware of it, but you do know it now. Now, let me add a truth that David knew, but that sometimes I find that modern-day people do find shocking. David said that even if he made his bed in Sheol, that is, in the place of the dead— whether it be among the righteous dead or the unrighteous dead. Even there, says David, you are there. I mean, think, for instance, of the very popular belief. It's a myth, by the way. You know, when speaking about hell, some modern-day Christians will say, look, all that hell is is the place where God is not. So you want to live without God? Well, God is going to give you what you ask for. He's going to give you a place where he is not. You know, what, what a direct contradiction to what the Bible teaches. God is omnipresent. You can't flee from his presence, not even in death. It doesn't matter if you are thinking of going to Tarshish or you're actually going to hell. God is always directly there. His presence, that is, the presence of God pervades all things. The horror of hell is a horror because God is there. Listen to the words of Revelation 14:9 and 10. It says, "...and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur—that's hell—in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, that is, in the presence of Jesus." See, that's the real hell, not the fake one. Now, let's be clear. When we say that God is everywhere present without any exceptions at all, it's very important also to insist that we do not make the mistake of some and say that God is identified with the creation. We are not to worship the creation. We are to worship the maker of the creation. You know, the creation is made up of material particles. It's temporal in nature. The Creator is Spirit, and He is eternal. There's an infinite distance between creation and Creator. But the Creator is always present at all places, at all times, to His creation. It wouldn't have mattered if Jonah was in Tarshish in his thinking at the edge of the world, or whether he was in Nineveh at the other end of things. In either case, he had not fled from God's immediate presence. He is at all times moving about in the direct presence of God. You can't hide from God because you're hiding in his direct view. You know, I, for my part, think that that Jonah was aware of Psalm 139. See, I believe that Jonah, when our text says that he was fleeing from God's presence or that he believed himself to be away from the presence of the Lord, that Jonah believed he could flee from the stage on which God was working. He believed that if he removed himself from the scene, God would be forced to either choose someone else or to abandon his plan to reach the people of Nineveh. So let's go back to Jonah's commission. Rise up, says God. Pack your travel bags, journey east until you come to Nineveh, and there announce their sins. And as we're going to see in the end of the book, Jonah is deeply suspicious that God has in mind mercy and grace to a monstrously evil, proud, cruel, and undeserving city. Perhaps Jonah was thinking about Abraham. Genesis 18, God takes Abraham to a place where on some hill or mountain they could look down and see the city of Sodom. God says, I've heard the outcry that's risen out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sin is so great that the time has come for me to go out and utterly destroy both of these cities. You remember Abraham's response? But God, he asked, I mean, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Would you sweep away the righteous along with the wicked? Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? So Genesis 18 has Abraham pleading with God. He wants to believe that there's someone left in one of those two cities who is still not being given over to evil. He pleads for mercy. You know, Jonah would surely have known that account of Abraham. He would have also known that his own attitude was different from Abraham. As far as Jonah was concerned, no prophet needed to go to Nineveh. No opportunity needed to be given to them. Let them burn like Sodom and Gomorrah. Let not them be saved. And that is one important point, although not the major point of the book. It really is not possible to flee from God's presence or to imagine that when we say no to God, that we have now spoken the last word on the matter. See, our word on any matter is never final. God's word is final. And so the idea that we can flee the presence of God, well, it's just not possible. God's will will be done. And therefore we do well to discover God's purpose in our lives, to rejoice in God's good purposes rather than to fight them as this man did. For God is good and to surrender to his purposes always, without exception, to live in that which is good and pleasing.
0: Thanks John. Let me ask you this. Is God selective? I mean, you know, he showed very little mercy to Sodom and Gomorrah, but he showed some mercy to Nineveh, or at least for a time.
1: Yeah, I know from our vantage point we might seem that, you know, in one situation it's like this and the other situation is like the other, but I think we need to remember that in in terms of Sodom and Gomorrah, that God had given considerable time for them to repent. And I think the lesson to be learned is that that God gives opportunities for individual people and for nations as well to repent of their wickedness, but the time comes when God's patience has been worn thin and when the time is brought to an end. That had not yet occurred in Nineveh, and, but it is a warning for us that you know, our own nation, our own people, our own culture can resist the pleadings of God for so long and then his mercy ends and we stand before the bar of judgment.
0: Thanks, John. That helps. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to cover Canada with the gospel and share God's message across all demographic groups. But fulfilling the mandate of this Bible teaching ministry requires a team effort. The ministry fiscal year end is upon us and will conclude on June 30th. This year we have a faith goal to raise $325,000 by month's end to bring the ministry budget year to a successful close. We're praying for our listeners and partners across the country to join us in reaching this goal. For your consideration this month, ministry friends have come together pledging to match your donation dollar for dollar up to $100,000. So every dollar given will be matched. Your grace will be met with grace. To give today and maximize the impact of your gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to
1: the Bible dot ca.